Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 153. What can you do if your text manipulation in Python is slowing you down? Are there faster alternatives using a compiled extension? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. Christopher shares a recent article by Edamar Turner-Trowering titled Speeding Up Text Processing in Python is Hard. The piece compares the performance of string matching scenarios using several compiled extension alternatives to pure Python. We also discuss a recent RealPython tutorial by Stephen Gruppetta. When should you use Dunder Repr versus Dunder String in Python? We cover the use cases for these special methods and the intended audiences for the strings they produce. We share several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news update the functional power of Python's Reduce, banning 1 plus n in Django, a friendly project to fetch your data files, and a tool for tracking your work from the shell. This episode is brought to you by Sneak. Sneak helps Python developers stay secure without slowing down by providing real-time code scanning and actionable fix advice right from their IDE. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Good to be here. All right, so this week we do have some news, but we are foregoing a discussion because we got... Quite a bit of news, actually. Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff happened. First little bit is the Python Package Index has launched a blog. Uh, it's <laughs> located at blog.pypi.org, which kind of makes sense. And the opening posting is a little intro telling you what they plan on doing with the space and just sort of giving you the highlights of what's there. It tantalizes you a little bit by just how few people work there and yeah. how much they do with like four employees. And uh, uh, even in that itself is kind of awesome. So uh, good to see the first post and looking forward to reading some more. Yeah, I think they're taking that that survey and trying to think about the visibility of the project, and which I think is really great. I, th I think it yeah. will help kind of keep uh, people informed of what's happening because Sure has been a lot happening. So, yeah, it's uh, over communication is usually a good default. It's uh, it's easy enough to tune things out. Uh, going digging is much harder. So, yeah, totally cool. Yeah, what's next? Uh, next little bit is uh, I don't know if you remember PEP five eighty two. That's a Python enhancement proposal, which was about the use of Dunder Pi packages directory. That has been rejected. The idea here was to use this directory for local package installs as an alternative to virtual environments. 
The steering council's comments around the proposal was uh, that there was a lot of disagreement amongst the packaging community as to whether this would be a net positive or a net negative. And the use of Dunder pie packages might cause complications when you start using those or moving to virtual environments as to when it should talk to what and how do you deal with packages in both places and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So they've, uh, they've rejected it. It's been a long journey. I think it's been kicking around for four or five years. The landscape of packaging in Python continues to be uh, rather uh, vibrant, maybe bordering yeah. on turbulent. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I guess there'll uh, there'll be more work on this as uh, as we go along. I had uh, quite the conversation with Brett Cannon. I, I know I'd been mentioning that I was trying to get him on the show, and so I actually have two nice conversations with him. And one of them, we delve into uh, the virtual environment blog post and then we also talk about packages quite a bit and he's involved in quite a bit of that stuff and in fact there's going to be two meetings uh summits if you will packaging summits so it's interesting that they they needed uh, two spots to get things sorted out so i think that's good though it's it's good that they're talking you know along with doing the language summit and the typing summit and things like that yeah i'm looking forward to listening to what he has to say to you it, uh, i'm good to hear what uh, what the other options are and how things work and how get a, get a little bit of that behind the scenes kind of thing going on yeah yeah <laughs> cool so you got some Django stuff next, yep, right? Yeah, the next uh, next two pieces, uh, the other two pieces are uh, Django things. Uh, first off, uh, a couple days ago before the recording here, Django 4.2 was released. It's got some new database features in this one, as well as uh, they continue to work on that whole async IO compatibility thing. 4.2 is a long-term stability release. That's LTS, which means it will be patched and supported for the next three years. So this one's going to be kicking around for a while. Okay. You'll see that number. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and books and things, right? And then the other thing is uh, DjangoCon Europe is requesting proposals for a host city for DjangoCon Europe 2024. So the conference in 2023 is coming up very shortly, and they're already thinking about who wants to host for next year. So if you think you want to put a committee together and have it in your location, then uh, proposals are due by May 10th. All right. Yeah, it was fun having the hosts from Porto and, and Portugal. That was a interesting conversation because it landed right in the middle of the pandemic. And so it was like they were had to shift to remote. And anyway, they were able to have a, a nice in-person uh, version. I think it was last year in Portugal. So, but yeah, it's it's a cool conference. Seems like a really neat community. Well, that dives us into topics this week. And I'm going to go first here. I have a real Python tutorial. It's by fairly frequent contributor, Stephen Gruppetta. This tutorial's uh, got these tags on it of best practices and intermediate. And I definitely agree there. Um, it's something that I found pretty early in my real Python journey that I needed to know what this stuff was. And I actually had a little bit of a hard time sort of asking around and trying to figure it out. I was, uh, you know, I've probably mentioned this a handful of times. I've One of the first video courses I created was the decorators course that was based on Gerarna's pretty massive tutorial about decorators. He was using this pair of special methods, the dunder repr or repr and dunder string or str. And I was like, what are these things? And why would you use one over the other? That's what this thing is titled. In fact, it's titled, when should you use dunder repr versus dunder string in Python? And I was like, wow, that would have been nice to be able to answer that. So good SEO there. So this is 
kind of very focused. It was one of these things that, like I said, I, I needed to kind of find this information. I was looking around and I found some of the information from some of Dan's tutorials, um, some of his early video stuff that he had done. And then I kind of ended up getting a, a clarification from Gerarna on it. But these two special methods are something that are very useful as kind of information providers about the objects that you create. And not all objects will have these. Uh, it depends on the type of class, if this is something that's been implemented already. And so this article gets into the nitty gritty of how to implement them. But the first thing of it is, what are these things? What are they called? Like, how, how do you name them? And how are they used, created, defined? And then why would you use one or the other? And both are used to really describe an object. If you've been in the REPL before and you've typed the name of an object just by itself, object name, and then hit return, what you'll see very often is a text that's returned from that, the string. And that is generated based upon these special methods. The REPR method, the R-E-P-R method, returns a real detailed sort of description. It's intended for programmers that need to maybe maintain or debug code. It's sort of an official string representation. Probably the most feedback from other people as I was trying to learn how to explain to, to others is that this is the thing that you could actually use. It should be designed in a way that if you're creating one of these yourself, that it can be used to recreate an instance of the object. It should be equal to the original. So like if you put that whole thing on a string, you can actually generate an object instance with those sort of settings. And so you would see it in the REPL. And again, you see this in the REPL when you just type the object name and hit return. A couple of things that I learned kind of looking at it, I have never used this before, but there's a REPR function that's sort of a built-in and just R-E-P-R. And then you, you know, call it with the parentheses. And then you would actually put the object's name right in that. I've never used it that way, but that would then also output it. The other way to do it is to type the object name and then it's a special method. So you can call it by, you know, putting a dot and then dunder repr and then again, a couple other underscores and then your parentheses. So that makes sense. Okay. The problem is it's a little ugly and again geared toward debugging and more for like a programmer whereas the string one is a simpler description and it still includes the information but it's more for an end user looking at the program and it actually is generated normally when you use print and then you put the object in there so if you called the print function and then put the object inside there as the argument it would print it out, and that's the string that would come out from that. And the other way you could do it is also you can use the uh, str function, toss the object in there, it would actually then output its string, or you can do the same kind of thing where you have the object's name and then call the dunder str method on it and call it. So just to give you an example of like what it looks like, he goes much more in detail into creating them, and I'll leave that for the article if you want to dive a little deeper into that. But let's say you imported date time and you created an object called today, and it's equal to you assign it to date time dot date time dot now, and you know you call that. So when you type 
today again in the REPL session right below that, it would say date time dot date time. And then it would actually in parentheses show the year, the month, the day, the hour, the minutes, the seconds. That is, again, how you could actually recreate that object. Just by typing today would actually do this representation of what the actual object is and all the data that's in it. If you were to then, on the line below that, type print, parentheses, put today inside of it, the object today, close that off, it would then actually print out a much more human-readable 2023-02 18 and then the time right after it, you know, something that looks much more like a true printable date and time. And so I think it's just one of these things that if you're not familiar with them and you're doing object-oriented programming and you're creating your own classes and you are getting kind of odd results when you type the, the name of the object and you're like, wow, it could be formatted better. This could show much better information. He then goes through in the article and shows you how to use f-strings and kind of to create and override and create your own dunder repper special method and your dunder string method. What's nice is you had a previous class where we talked about this, where we talked about data classes. And it's nice because a lot of that stuff has been created for you. It has a, a repper ready to go, which is nice. So should you define each in a custom class? Well, it'll make it more maintainable. And again, it will facilitate debugging. Kind of a nice thing if you're working with other programmers to be able to see what's happening with your code. I really liked it. I thought it was a good explanation of it. Again, one of these things you think, oh, this is a simple topic. And it takes a little bit to kind of dig in and explain it sometimes. Yeah, I'm very anal retentive about defining Dunder String on most of my classes. I find when I'm debugging, I find it very, very helpful. Repper, I don't typically bother unless I'm doing something where I know it's going to be used in the REPL a lot. Okay. You know, teach teach their own. A lot of it depends on what you're building for. I would like to uh, express to the rest of the world that we now have an American on record referring to year, month, date as the more readable version of how dates work. <laughs> you can't take it back. I you think it is, honestly. It back. Yeah. <laughs> It's also much more sortable. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. It's like a number. Yes, yeah. what a novel yeah, a idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not like most Americans. <laughs> yeah, there is that. There is that. Yeah. There are a ton of ways for malicious actors to get into the systems you build, like SQL injection, arbitrary code execution, and out-of-bounds rights, just to name a few. Luckily, you don't have to be a security expert to keep your apps secure. Sneak is a developer security platform that helps you secure your applications from the start. And Sneak does it all right from the existing tools and workflows you already use. IDEs, CLI, repos, pipelines, and more. So your work isn't interrupted. Start your free Sneak account at sneak.co slash realpython. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash realpython. 
So uh, what's your first topic here? Uh, this one is from a frequent Pike Holders contributor, Itamar Turner-Trowing, and it's called Speeding Up Text Processing in Python is Hard. The premise is you're doing some work and you've hit the limitations of what Python can do for you performance-wise. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different choices to take it to the next level, and the article essentially says, how do you pick and you know what works? The sample problem covered is name matching. So it takes a user input string containing a person's name and attempts to match that to a known database. And names are kind of complicated, right? So take the three words, Mary Louise Mignon. And how do you know that Mary Louise is the first name? Well, Mignon is the last name. Culturally, you know, you can make a good guess. Programmatically, whatever you choose, there'll be another name that's the opposite and is going to mess you up. Yeah. So Itamar writes a name normalizing routine uh, that takes this single input string and chops it up into three different groupings uh, so that if you've got a first and last or a first and a middle and a last or a first and a last that's a compound with spaces and returns a bunch of different versions of it and then uses those different versions to do a lookup in a uh, database to try and match these things. And the idea behind the program is something like somebody's typed something into a, a like a petition form, and you're trying to map that against, say, a government database of their actual name and address. And so he takes this chunk of Python, it's about a dozen lines long at most, and then says, okay, let's see what we can do speed-wise. And then he runs through a bunch of different candidates for speeding it up, and the first candidate is Cython. Cython, if you haven't heard of it before, it's a compiled language that is mostly compatible with Python. So essentially, they take Python and then add a few restrictions, and none of the restrictions apply in this case. So essentially, you can just take the Python code and compile it with Cython and go. Okay. And then the next candidate is MyPYC. I, I haven't come across this before, interestingly enough. It's an offshoot of MyPy, the type checker. And it essentially uses the annotation information to better optimize the code. Uh, so doing this requires a little bit of change to the original function because the first version of it didn't have the type checking. So he essentially adds the type annotations to it and then runs it through uh, MyPYC to see what the difference is. And the next choice is essentially like a compiled extension. He's chosen to use Rust to do that. Of course, this is a full language switch, so you're rewriting the function in Rust mm. uh, and then connecting it to the Python program. He uses the Py03 library, which is a library used to sort of hook Rust into Python and has Python objects and that kind of thing. And then the last candidate is to actually change out the interpreter. So use the same function, but instead of using CPython, use PyPy, uh, which is an alternative interpreter, and it has features like just-in-time compilation. Okay, so that's the field. He then runs a bunch of tests and then gets some interesting results. The worst performer wasn't natural Python. It was Rust. Huh. And uh, it was able to produce about 3.6 million names per second. Next came Python, which was CPython, and it was tied with Cython, uh, both doing about 5.3 million names per second. And then the runner-up was MyPYC at 6.6 .6 million, and the winner was PyPy at 6.9 million names per second. So first off, none of these are huge performance gains, right? So ignoring for the for the moment that Rust made things worse, uh, the difference between CPython, natural Python, whatever you want to call it, and PyPy is really only 30%. So that's not that great a speed up uh, considering. 
And then this, then let's talk about the elephant. Why is Rust slower? And there's a couple things going on here. So the C Python and Rust representations of strings in memory are different. And so there's a lot of data conversion going on, and that's expensive. Uh. And secondly, because the routine returns Python objects, there's a lot of back and forth between the Rust layer and the Python layer. And again, moving those objects around is kind of expensive, right? So essentially, you're t- although you're running in a compiled and faster language, the cost of interacting with the interpreter and playing with the strings is bogging it down. Uh, making it worse. So normally for a lot of things, Rust would be better, but in this particular case, because it's string heavy, you get surprising results. The fact that PyPy was faster wasn't really a surprise. Uh, This is the kind of thing that it excels at. Uh, Small, tight loops on similar data types. This is really where JIT compilers are, are most effective. So this wasn't too much of a surprise. And then the tail end of the article talks about, all right, given we've got these things and we're not happy with any of them, what else could we do? Uh, you know, one of the approaches was this function was handling a name at a time. So doing some batch processing, sending in all the names or many of the names might affect it. And of course, that might cause the Rust to be a lot better because you can do a whole bunch of data munging down at the compiled layer and then you're not as expensive passing it back up to Python. Or moving to a library, something like Polars, that is uh, excels at this kind of thing could make a big difference as well. So short version, optimization is often hard. Uh, When coders talk about not prematurely optimizing your code, it isn't because you shouldn't optimize, but it's that most of the time our gut on what is the right approach is incorrect. And you really have to sort of measure and figure out what's actually going on because you may be making it worse. So neat little article. Yeah, he does this all the time where like, (laughs) it's kind of like, I remember all these podcasts about social science and it's all this sort of like turns out kind yes. of sort of stuff. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I feel like he's that for the for the Python and data world very often. Turns out. <laughs> yeah, he focuses a lot on speed up things and, uh, and yeah, yeah. optimization and speed up really is one of those, particularly, you know, I, we, we talked about one a few episodes back where he was getting into uh, how parallelism and threading can make your life worse or using it at the same time or the parallelism of your library interfering with the threading of your program. And like, there's all these situations where it's like throwing more processors at it should make it better, except in this case. And you you have to be very careful about that, except in this case situation. Yeah, text is a weird one because the different ways that it's stored and, you know, like even an empty string is like, has a certain amount of size because it's an actual object. And yeah, it's just kind of, Funky, so I can imagine it being yes. pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, it's gotten worse in Python three because of Unicode, right? And uh, different oh, yeah. uh, different characters have different sizes, and there's the how the compiler <laughs> yeah. how the compiler stores it versus how you can store it, and it's yeah, it, it it's te- text is somebody fun. has like a course on this. I vaguely remember I somebody doing just that. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. So my next one is from an, another frequent contributor, I feel like, Martin Hines, and it's on his website, martinhines.dev. His article is titled Reduce, colon, the power of a single Python function. Python is not a functional programming language. It has the ability to do that. I'll talk a little bit about that sort of history of them sort of adding some of this functionality uh, to Python for people that really wanted functional programming inside of it. But 
with just one function, reduce, you can do most of it. And that's kind of what this article kind of takes you into and tours you through. If you're not familiar with reduce, it's part of the funk tools package. You need to import it in. So funk tools dot reduce would be like, you know, what you need to be importing in there. It does something that is known in computer science world of folding. So it folds a binary operation, which is two operands, like a, you know, A plus B, that would be the two things make it binary. So on the left and the right, into each pair of items. And so it goes from left to right and takes each of the iterable items and applies a function to them folding them together as it goes, which is kind of interesting. So it has a required arguments of a function and then some iterable and does have a special thing called an initializer. And if that's present, it would be placed before the items in the iterable and the calculation. Most of the examples he has doesn't use that, but one of the main things it's using, and this is common in functional programming, is, is going to use recursion instead of for loops. For loops are really great in Python. They kind of take advantage of iterables. and But in this case, it's going to, again, apply something to a function, to a function, to a function. What we know as reduce in Python is commonly known as folding. In functional programming languages like Haskell, it's I think it actually is fold L, which would be fold from left to right. And the article really dives into how to use this single Python function and how it can be used to do all these functional programming tasks. And so he shows implementations in code, Python code, of doing things like mapping or filtering or reversing or finding the minimum or finding the maximum. And you might be thinking to yourself, don't we already have like optimized Python functions for all this stuff? Yes, yeah, they're there. But it's kind of interesting that you can kind of think about from a computer science mind, how are these things created? And then there may be times where you want to create something that is like that, but it's altered in some way. And so you can learn programmatically how these things work and the composition of them. He talks about hashing functions, column-wise reduction, and then a couple more. Even though Python isn't heavily influenced by functional programming languages, in 1993, there was a demand for it and some functional programming features that people wanted above. And in response, several functional tools were added to the language. And according to Guido, they were contributed by a community member. And Python acquired Lambda, uh, Reduce, Filter, and Map. And he says it was like courtesy of, he believes, a Lisp hacker who had missed them and wanted them. <laughs> and so he submitted them and added working patches to it. Over the years, there have been lots of new features added to Python, Lisp comprehensions, generator expressions, and built-in things like sum, min, max, all, any, that are really considered the Pythonic replacements for these things. And I guess Guido had planned to remove map, filter, and reduce in Python 3, and I guess it never came to fruition, probably from outcries of functional programmers who still wanted these things. So I think it's just a neat tour of functional programming in Python, uh, learning how Reduce can apply and create some of these different features. There is a really good companion article from Leodonis on our site, Python's Reduce from functional to Pythonic style. And he actually 
does a bit of a speed comparison just to kind of give you an idea. Because I think the core thing that Martin says at the end is, hey, it's important to note that, yes, there are these tools, but Python is not a functional programming language. And these examples probably shouldn't be used in practice and probably are not going to be very efficient. But again, in the process of learning more about programming, it's something kind of cool to kind of dig into. From Laodonis' article, he imported timeit and then, you know, created a user-defined function, created like an add A comma B and have it return A plus B and then use that as the um, the reduce, you know, so func tools that reduce add and then he had like a range. And it won, it had, it took like 13 seconds. Then he did it as a lambda, which took about 12 seconds. Then he used the add operator using reduce and it was like five seconds. Then he said, we'll just use some <laughs> and it was like one second. So, you know, you can see again, that'll vary depending on your processor and so forth. But these are nice to have. And again, depending on what you're trying to do, it's it's kind of a neat tour of functional programming in Python and learning a little more about reduce. I did a little more of an exploration of functional programming with uh, Bruce Eckel, and he was on episode 116. So again, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, he was talking about some of the features of uh, data classes and what it is to sort of think about functional programming. And he's always been not as much of a fan of dynamic languages. And then he kind of had this awakening and it was kind of cool to talk to him about it, um, of how he can use some of these tools that are in Python and kind of get some of the things that he loves about functional programming inside of it. What do you got next? So have you used, have you done much work in this space? Uh, with functional stuff, with yeah. like reduce and so forth. I've, I've used it in some data science situations. The thing I've used probably the most is Lambda. Yeah. to apply, you know, functions across different sets. And then most often the things that I'm trying to do, there's usually optimized functions, either Pythonic ones or there's ones that are built into, you know, pandas or NumPy. I, mean, NumPy, I, go, yeah, oh, yeah, I yeah. should have been doing this. Yeah, I, I find most of the, because most of what I'm doing is procedural, uh, the functional aspect of Python is definitely one of my weaker places. And I, I, it's okay. I, I find it. It's kind of like recursion. There are places I know where to use it, and I know how to do those algorithms well. But if you said you must use your recursion to do this instead, it causes me sometimes. It take it takes me longer to do it oftentimes. And uh, I find a lot of the functional stuff. It's the same way. I, I see the power of it, and I see the power of it in other languages. But I always find it uh, hurts my brain a little bit to, to 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 go that go to go there. Yeah. It's a big paradigm shift, you know, yeah. not only, you know, functional stuff, but this recursion generally. Yes. <laughs> that was a Al Squire's argument. Wrote an entire book to basically say, um, <laughs> when should you use this? Probably not ever. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you're dealing with a tree, and if you're yeah, not yeah, dealing exactly. with a tree, stop yeah, it. Yes. Mazes and, and file trees and things yeah. like that <laughs> were, were the places where he's like, yeah, this is really handy here. So... This week, I want to shine the spotlight on another real Python video course. It's about a topic we touch on briefly in this week's episode. It's one of those areas where a good foundation goes a long way toward your programming future. The course is titled Unicode in Python, Working with Character Encodings. The course is based on a real Python tutorial by Brad Solomon, and it's presented by my co-host this week, 
Christopher Trudeau. Python's Unicode support is strong and robust, but it takes some time to master. There are many ways of encoding text into binary data. And in the course, you'll learn a bit about the history of encodings. You'll practice with multiple examples and see how to work smoothly with text and binary in Python. By the end of the course, you'll know what an encoding is, what ASCII is, how binary displays as octal and hex values, how UTF-8 encodes a code point, how to combine code points into a single glyph, and which built-in functions can help you. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn the intricacies of Unicode, UTF-8, ASCII, and how to use them when programming in Python. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. All our lessons include transcripts, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. What's your next thing is another, it's a Django thing, right? Uh, it is, yeah. We seem to be uh, hitting that drum a lot today. Uh, this is, it, it's kind of a Django thing. It has a Django perspective, but there's a non-Django perspective as well. So okay. uh, the article is called Ban 1 Plus N in Django, and it's by Alex Shenpanofsky, and he writes at hackflow.com. So the uh, 1 plus N problem is a frequent issue when you're interacting with a database. And it's an anti-pattern where you do a query and then have to do a subsequent query for each result in the first query. So the one being the first query and then the N being a query for each result. Uh. So an overly simple full, uh, an overly simple version of this where you'd catch this without a problem, but would be, say, I go and query all of the IDs in the person table, and then I go and do a lookup using that ID for the rest of the data for particular people, right? The, it, so this example is a little academic because you could just do the first query properly and grab their first name and last name and only do the one query. But sometimes when you start dealing with multiple tables, the pattern isn't quite as obvious and it can fall over. And where it gets worse is using an ORM. So an ORM might be configured to do lazy loading. And lazy loading is the idea that you can query a bunch of objects. It brings them back to you. But then when you go to get the attributes out of those objects, it goes and then looks the full thing up, which essentially is the one plus n anti-pattern. The lazy loading is meant to be a performance feature so that you aren't loading all of the data all at once. But if you know you're going to be loading and using all that data, then this can actually get in the way. And uh, in fact, there are things you can do in Django to force it to go and prefetch all the things to go with it to stop this from happening. Okay. All right. So generally, when you're dealing with databases, you should be really, really careful about this. Now, for the Django-specific stuff, uh, what Alex does is he goes off and writes a utility that causes an exception if you attempt to do this kind of loading. The idea being that you can sort of install this inside of your code, and then when you're running your tests, if you happen to be triggering this situation, it'll blow up and you'll see that, that it's happening in your test. So that was kind of neat and some interesting little code in there and some... If you're, you're into Django and uh, fields, seeing how the fields work as to how he handles the problem is kind of interesting. But the part that I found the most fun was he actually also has a companion article to go with it, which was he attempted <laughs> to write this blog post using ChatGPT the first time round. 
So he links to the prompts that he gave ChatGPT, how it responded, what he had to do to make it usable. And my favorite part of that is where he asks GPT, uh, GPT for a smart-ass title and then has to try to explain to ChatGPT that its response wasn't smart-ass at all. Um, so he's, there's this whole <laughs> conversation going on with the robot and it brought me to this new measure of AI. When it can finally produce sarcasm at the rate of a teenager, then I'm going to be worried for humankind being taken over. So... Yeah. Uh, so yeah, a neat little problem in the database space and then uh, an interesting little aside as to how he tried and failed to write this post with ChatGPT and what he got out of it instead. Yeah, to release Snark GPT. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, that's right. All right, so that dives us uh, right into projects. And when I saw this in PyCoders, I was like, wait, I know that name. <laughs> when I was at PyCascades, I stayed to watch lightning talks and the lightning talks i think it was the second day santiago solar who works on a, this particular project gave a lightning talk about this particular project where i was like all right awesome it's called pooch a friend to fetch your data files has a cute logo with a dog and a snake i was actually very pleased to see that it's already up on youtube so i'll include a link to his lightning talk it's short it's a, the intent of lightning talks right it's like five minutes it gives a really great summary and the idea of pooch is the problem with data files so if you're creating a project maybe it's a data visualization project or something like that and then you want to share a data set with it well the data set is going to be massively outsized the amount of you know your code so very often you can't put these data files easily uh, of a certain size on github you have to kind of plan how you want to do that and basically if you want an easy solution to download data files from the web maybe you also want the ability to reuse those files and maybe if you are also looking for a way to check to see if something's happened to those files if they're potentially corrupted this is a a package that tries to solve all those things. It's pure Python. It has a minimal set of dependencies. It downloads a file only if it's necessary, if you already have it again. Um, the idea of reusing files, if it's in the cache, it won't, or it needs to be updated, are the only reasons why it would change if it's not there. It has a way to verify download integrity using SHA-256 hashes. It has the ability to be extensible. It has uh, like uh, plugin custom stuff for FTP, SCP, which I'm not familiar with, post-processing, so it can you can tell it, I want it to also unzip or decompress or rename things. It's a really neat package. And so if you're a data scientist or researcher, it's going to be, I think, a helpful way for you to share data. And as far as like how you use it, you would import it, you create like a file path, and then you say pooch.retrieve, put a URL, give it the known hash that you want, and then you can even specify the path where you want it to, to save this to. Um, if you're going to do something more elaborate, you can make like a, a sub-object that can do sort of more processing and other modular kinds of things that you may want to do with it. He's got a list of users. SciPy are using this, SciKit image, MetPy, IcePack. Uh, Seaborn. So some names you probably have heard us even mentioned on the show that are already using Pooch. So I, I think it's a really cool project. And I, I think it's worth your time just to check out his talk about it and learn a little bit more. 
Um, they're also open to having more people join the team. I have a nice thing on his on the GitHub about how to join and um, if you're interested in uh, becoming a contributor. SCP is SSH copy. It's doing file tra- file transfers over SSH. Oh, okay. So if you if you can SSH to a box, you can SCP a file to a box using the same keys. So it's handy. SCP file. Okay, great. Nice. All right. What what do you got for us? I've got a project called Worked On, one word. It's by Vizesh Rajan Drapit Rasad. And it's a workbook slash diary tool where you, you type something like worked on improving code coverage and it adds an entry to a local SQL Lite database with your comment and the date timestamp. So a little diary tracking kind of thing. Okay. Uh, the tool uses the date parser library, which I think we've talked about before. Um, and that allows you to do human readable date parsing. Uh, so this allows the tool to do things like you can put an at symbol and then put something like 3 p.m. three days ago, and it'll modify the date timestamp on the thing that you're recording to be under that actual time. So you can actually put in things for now or for some other time, and you don't have to precisely type that horrible year, month, date thing. You can say yesterday, and it knows what to do with that. So date parse is a very cool library. Um, so using the same tool, you can actually query the database and see what you worked on. So it works kind of like a Git log, your yeah. Git history sort of thing. Um, and it's got a whole bunch of command line switches. So you can even query different time periods. So you can say, what you know, what did I work on four days ago and that kind of thing. It's a neat little tool. My only criticism is it uses the same command for recording as querying. So if you type worked on what it reports, whereas worked on some sentence does logging, and this strikes to me like there's accidentally invoking the query behavior if you're not careful, you know, putting the wrong yeah. quotes in or putting what in your sentence. Uh, so, Vizesh, if you're listening, I'd suggest moving the queries to switches or using a different command. Just my two cents, but this would not stop me from using this tool. It's just a, a, a there's a little bit of a gotcha here. That's all. Uh, but yeah, neat little thing. And I know a lot of folks that are really into the, the whole tracking as they go along. And uh, it's all in the same shell where you're working. So you don't have to go and load some other tool or think about something else. And uh, nice and easy on the command line and uh, all in Python. So very excellent. Nice. It's been a lot of good projects lately. I'm, I'm saving one for ne- <laughs> our next uh, our next recording. I'm excited to talk about it. So I was like, oh, wait, that looks really cool on the list too. Yeah, it's it. It always the populating the projects list in PyCoders is one of the easier things to do. It's uh, it, I often have the other problem of oh, I've got ten things submitted and I only want to use <laughs> five of them this week. Yeah, it, that's it's far easier. There, there there are times when I'm like oh, I need to find four more articles this week, and that can be a challenge. But it's almost never hard to find some other project. So well, great. Well, th- thanks again for coming on and bringing all these articles and projects this week. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. And don't forget, automatically find and fix vulnerabilities in your Python projects for free with Sneak. Create your free Sneak account at sneak.co slash realpython. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about 
inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.